Look in your Bible again with me for the message, Judges chapter 9. Going as far only as through verse 6 in our reading this morning, Judges 9. And Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem unto his mother's brethren and communed with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Speak, I pray you, in the ears of the masters of Shechem, whether it's better for you either that all the sons of Jerubbabel, which are threescore and ten persons, reign over you, or that one reign over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's brethren spake of him in the ears of all the men of Shechem, Shechem all these words. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he is our brother. And they gave him three score and ten pence pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Pirith. Wherewith Abimelech hired vain and light persons which followed him. And he went unto his father's house at Oprah and slew his brethren, the sons of Jerubbabel, being threescore and ten persons upon one stone. Notwithstanding, yet Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem gathered together and all the house of Milo and went and made Abimelech king by the plain of the pillar that was at Shechem. Turn with me again in your hymn book, please, and stand with me. And we sing together number 490. Great King of glory and of grace we all with how vile is our degenerate race and our first father's name. We live estranged afar from God and love the dead. 
which stands well. With haste we run the dangerous road that leads to death and hell. And can such rebels be restored? Such natures made divine. Let sinners see thy glory, Lord, and feel this power of We raise our Father's name on high. Who his own spirit sends to bring rebellious strangers nigh and turn his foes to pray. Thank you, Miss Lessons from a mutiny. Adersheim called this scene mutiny. On last week, I'd begun an exposition of this ninth chapter in the record of the judges of Israel. And I announced my intention to open up this chapter more or less by the five headings, the five divisions which Dr. Gill has set out in his commentary. To that end, I tried to set before our minds on the last Lord's Day only those first six verses bringing this scene clearly into focus. Especially, I did that by the consideration of some of the significant Hebrew wording, but also by viewing the cultural and contextual setting of these scenes. Most all of you have heard me say various times in various contexts that it is my rule in the matter of preaching or teaching the scriptures that you can never understand any text until you understand every word in that text and each word's relation to the rest. That has been a hard fast rule with me, and I hope that you've adopted it. And so I have tried to bring to our hearts an understanding of this text by its context and by its words. So I try always 
to begin, especially a new chapter, with these technical investigations, linguistic investigations, in order to the understanding of any part of the Holy Scriptures. So just to briefly set this scene again before us, before we extract its lessons, this is the place, the record in which Abimelech, that son of a concubine, steps up at the death of his father, which we were given, verse 32 of chapter 8, Gideon the son of Joash died and was buried in the sepulcher of Joash his father. And upon his death, his this bastard son of a concubine steps forward and plots and schemes and connives a plan by which he may find himself instated as the king of the men of Shechem, his brethren on his mother's side, and by implication, king of all of Israel. This is the scene that we set before our minds on last week and now knowing that no portion of the sacred scripture is given solely for the purpose of historical recording or merely as entertainment. That being known I, as your pastor and as an individual Christian, I'm always seeking to know in every text what it is that our God is saying to us in that text. What is the message? What are the lessons of our God to us in this text? So then, I ask, what are the easy and low-hanging fruits to our souls from these first six verses in chapter 9? I must confess that when I first set about in my studies some weeks ago in these verses, I saw little that drew my attention. And I had almost purposed to move very quickly over them. But then as my heart was drawn nearer by the study in the Hebrew text, I became acutely conscious of some of the great designs of our God in this solemn record with no particular aim at craft or wit, I give you the following considerations in the science of understanding the diseases of the fallen human heart. I believe we have a textbook here. A textbook that could teach us and give us a better understanding in the science 
of understanding the diseases of the fallen human heart. Now I'm very aware, according to Jeremiah 17, verse 9 and 10, that only God can rightly and fully know the heart. I'm aware of that. But he has given us his word to facilitate, even in our limited capacity, to facilitate our own understanding of the human heart to the intent that we may understand where it is we have offended our God and how it is we may avoid it. Just by way of a sidelight, I suggest to your mind that this Bible is the only textbook for diagnosing the sickness of the human heart. In my job, I encounter professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists, social analysts, People who have volumes of man-made, man-written books that are supposed to be able to diagnose the problems with children. And they fail utterly and consistently. And I suggest to you the only textbook for the diagnosing of the malady of the human heart is this book. And without its light, there will be no light to the diagnosis of the human problem. So then what are the considerations set before us in this text to facilitate our study of the science of understanding the human heart? First, I give you here The first consideration, I give you a proverbial cornucopia of knowledge of the dark craft of subtlety, deceitful subtlety. Here is a consideration from this text that will greatly facilitate our study in the science of the human condition. There is a study here in deceitful subtlety. And this surely is one of the great maladies of the human heart. Here in our text are at least two glaring evidences of the poisonous machinations of deceitful subtlety manifested in the wicked posturing of Abimelech's conduct. Let us learn here the ploys of our enemy more fully in order that we may guard ourselves from his wiles more wisely. We are looking at the consideration of deceitful subtlety. 
two examples I said. First of all, with all the poison of a forked tongue adder and poise and all the poise of a statesman, he employs words guaranteed to incite rage against his enemies and favor to himself. Verse 5. And he went unto his father's house at Oprah and slew his brethren. Sorry, he sent me. Go back verse 2. Speak, I pray to the ears, whether it be better for them that one should reign or these many brethren. And he addresses them, the sons, whether it be, whether it's better for you either that all the sons of Jerubbabel that name meaning destroyer of Baal. Here is the subtlety of language employed to evil designs. This is certain. The use of that name, rather than the name Gideon, the use of that name was certain to chafe the mind of his hearers and to raise their passions to a fever pitch against any goodwill that could have been found in the name Gideon. Here is the subtle use of language. Here is a ploy so often effective, especially on the mindless mass. Remember, these are called in verse 4, vain, which means empty, and light, which means boiling up, restless. Certainly it is those of that mind on which this kind of tactic may be used with great effectiveness, the use of subtle language. Such men as these described in verse 4 are not habituated in the skill of critical listening. <coughs> we teach our children that, do we not? You mothers, you teachers. This is one of the important parts of your work. You teach children the business of critical listening. But the moronic masses have not developed that skill. And so they're not conscious of the ploy that's being worked on them in the words of Abimelech. They're made vicious pawns to this artful subtlety by those that are better in the use of language. Oh, has not the enemy of our souls used this very ploy, bringing all of Adam's race into the grips of damning depravity by this very ploy? Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more 
subtle. Didn't I say we're looking at this first consideration in the study of the human condition, the consideration of subtlety. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said, he said, he said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, He shall not eat of every tree of the garden and cast in her mind by that question, a question mark over God himself and his intentions and his designs toward them. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. But God didn't say that. But he brought into her mind by the subtlety of his approach and his language, he brought doubt in her mind and she interjected these thoughts. I said to you, I'm simply saying to you, it is by this very ploy that the enemy of our souls plunged the entire human race into depravity. Subtle use of language. Oh, can I just warn you about the subtlety of a deceitful tongue. A thousand kingdoms have been set on fire of hell by the craft of a subtle tongue. Oh, my brothers, my sisters, be cautious that your words are clear and honest, not just accurate. I confess before you this has in former days of my life been one of my greatest besetting sins. May God help me. But I say it to you again. Take note of how I worded it. Be cautious that your words are clear and honest, not just accurate. Well, you see, it is possible to say a thing that is technically accurate. Jerubbaal was not an inaccurate name for Gideon. It is possible to say a thing that is technically accurate while at the same time it is intended to achieve a subtle effect and is therefore dishonest. It is accurate, but it is dishonest. I said be sure our words are clear and honest, not just accurate. No wonder the great apostle to the Gentiles warns the Corinthian church so sternly in chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with the excellency of speech or wisdom declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear 
and in much trembling and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I was careful, he was saying. I was careful in my preaching that I was clear and I was honest, not just a And then again, in his second letter to that church, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 15, he said in this, and in this confidence I was minded to come to you before, that ye might have a second benefit to pass by you unto Macedonia and to come to you out of Macedonia unto you and to you to be brought on by my way toward Judea. And when I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness or the things that I purpose? Do I purpose according to the flesh that with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay? But as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by him, by me and Savannah and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. Gil said, Concerning Paul's meaning, commenting on verse 17 in that text I just read, Gil said, Paul is saying, do I say one thing at one time and another thing at another time or both in the same breath? That I should say one thing and mean another or purpose to deceive you? That's Paul's argument in that text, Gil said. Have I been confusing? Have I in any way slighted words so that you got a yay and a nay at the same time? No, he said, I was clear with you. All that I said to you was yay and amen. And there was only one way to view it. His language had no tint of subterfuge or subtlety. <laughs> All right? His language had no tint of subterfuge or subtlety. Clearly, that's what he's saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Oh, that we might speak the truth in love. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. Even among ourselves as saints. Subtlety. Notice with me with whom, with, with whom may this ploy be most likely to succeed. Verse 1, And Abimelech the son of Jerubbabel went to Shechem unto his mother's brethren. With whom, I ask, may this particular ploy be most likely to succeed? I answer, with one's own family with one's own family. Here, such subtle deceits 
may be more likely to succeed where the ties of family are more likely to disarm suspicion and slacken the guard. Family is more likely to deceive family than anyone outside the family. Because in that context, there is a disarming of suspicion. Bush says that Abimelech applied himself to his family first with all the arts of an aspiring demagogue. And Bush said of him, Abimelech was advancing a reason for his election which was never contemplated in the appointments of magistrates over the nation of Israel. It was, in fact, directly opposed to the true ends of that institution, which required that persons chosen to office should be selected on the ground of moral qualification, and that in their administration of justice, they should be free from the bias naturally arising from private and personal regards. But it was not so with Abimelech. He goes to his family and employs this weapon of subtlety in deceitful use of language. Hmm. Was not this the very ploy that Jacob the supplanter used to trick his father? into the blessing that was meant for Esau in Genesis 27? Was it not this very ploy, subtlety, deception? Oh, the damning craft of a subtle tongue. The scriptures contain great insight into this devilish art by giving us Several different words in the original to describe it. Number one, the first word I would give you is that which is used, the serpent, in 2 Corinthians 11.3, is said to beguile. That word beguile in the Greek in 2 Corinthians 11.3. It means adroitness, craftiness. And it's equivalent that I read to you out of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Its Hebrew equivalent is a Hebrew word that means smooth, cunning trickery. So we have one word. One Greek word translated beguile in 2 Corinthians 11.3. But then there's another word. Proverbs chapter 7 describes the folly of a young man and his entrapment. Proverbs chapter 7 and verse 7. And here a different word is used. Proverbs 7 
and verse 7, And beheld among the simple ones, I discerned among the youths a young man void of understanding, passing through the street near her corner, and he went to the way he went the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. Behold, there met him a woman with the attire of a harlot and subtle of heart. Here is a Hebrew word different from the one used in Genesis three that means to conceal. So that subtlety is always characterized by this, that there's something being concealed. And this young man in Proverbs 7 finds himself entangled with a woman who has in her heart to conceal her real intentions. Another word. I'll give you a third. Paul uses yet another Greek word in Acts 13. In Acts chapter 13. In Acts 13, listen as he speaks in that text. Chapter 13 and verse 6. And when they had gone through the isle under Patmos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the county Sergius Apollos, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. And Elymas, the sorcerer, or so is his name by interpretation, withstood them seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, Oh, full of subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? He called him full, verse 10, of subtlety. Here the word is one that means a bait or a decoy. And so we see yet another form that subtlety may take. It may come in the form of a decoy or a bait. But that's not all. There's another found in 2 Kings, number 4, 2 Kings chapter 10, where Jehu is said to deceive the prophets of Baal in verse 19. There's the word there meaning to circumvent by tripping up. To circumvent by tripping up. And Jehu did it. Jehu did it. To deceive the prophets of Baal. And by the way, <laughs> Dr. Gill couldn't resist commenting on that particular word used in that particular verse, 19 of chapter 10 of 2 Kings. Gill called it an unusual form. It is feminine intense. <laughs> feminine. 
Not at all sure what Dr. Gill meant to be saying there. But he points it out linguistically. All of these words, all of these words and others are all given to us to warn us of the evil of subtlety. Oh, the subtlety that can be achieved by the use of language with malicious design. We all do that, do we not? Have done it. Have done it. Might do it. Didn't say anything technically wrong. Technically. Accurate. But not honest. Subtlety. But secondly, not only is there subtlety in the use of his language, I said there are two examples of the subtlety in this text as a characteristic. The characteristic I'm trying to emphasize to you is that of subtlety. And I said there's two examples of that in this text. One is the use of language. But the second, not only is there subtlety in his use of language here in this record, but there's subterfuge also in false insinuation. Artfully contrived to stir up the most base and evil passions in the depraved hearts of men. Subterfuge in false insinuation. Look at verse 2. Speak, I pray you, in the ears of the men of Shechem, whether is better for you, would it be better for you, either that all of those 70 sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or whether just one should rule over you. Now, I said the art of false insinuation. He never said that they intended to rule over anyone. He never said that. He simply never said. He never said they intend to rule over you. But by the art and craft of subterfuge, he insinuates that that would be what would happen. That's what their design was. Certainly, they never said such a thing. Neither did they intend it. But the power of, sinu of insinuation is the subtle exercise of implying. <laughs> oh, how often are we poised to imply a thing and by that subtle implication much affect 
may be gained by those whose scruples are base and contriving. Bush wisely said, He who has a wicked purpose to serve will not stick at a lie to accomplish it, or at least the hint of the possibility. Abimelech is basically saying here, what if, what if all 70 of those men try to rule over you? Do you see the subtlety of that? you see the subtlety of that false implication? What if those who are designing ill in themselves are ever ready to charge similar designs in others? What's he wanting to do? He's wanting to be made king. So what's he doing? He's implying they're going to want to be made king. Those that have evil intentions are always ready to charge them to others. Oh, the malignity of an evil innuendo. The malignity of an evil innuendo. Subtlety. Achieved by implication. Again, what better example can we find than that first and master deceiver himself who in the very garden of God implied that there was evil in God's heart toward Adam and Eve. His question. He didn't say God means to block you and restrict you. He didn't say that. He just asked the question by insinuation. Has God said? And the insinuation achieved the whole task. Oh, Abimelech. What a craft. What a craft. Oh, subtlety, subtlety, subtlety. Thou cursed disease from hell. God deliver us all from this hideous stain of subtlety. 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 Here's a characteristic. Here's a characteristic that will help us to properly diagnose the diseases that plague the fallen human heart. Subtlety. Stand right at the top of the list. It was that which was employed by the master deceiver himself. Subtlety. May God deliver us all from it. God deliver me from it. God deliver us all. So now I've given you from this text this first consideration in diagnosing the fallen human condition. Subtlety. I will go forward and 
set before you from this history of Abimelech other grave considerations in diagnosing this disease. We'll take up there next week. Stand with me, please. Sing with me. Number 447 in your hymn book. Oh! 